0: he became aware that most of his intro to American Lit class was watching him. As a 35-year-old, Wesley supposed it was hard for them to decide if he was old school, like the ancient Dr. Wentz, who looked remarkably like a crocodile in a three-piece suit, or new school, like Suzanne Montanari, who liked to play Avril Levine's girlfriend in her introduction to modern drama class. Wesley supposed his reaction to Henderson's Kindle would help them with that. Mr. Henderson, he said, there will always be books, which means there will always be paper and binding. Books are real objects. Books are friends. Yeah, but, Henderson had replied, his sweet smile now becoming slightly sly, but, they are also ideas and emotions. You said so in our first class. Well, Wesley had said, you've got me there. But books aren't solely ideas. Books have a smell, for instance, one that gets better, more nostalgic as the years go by. Does this gadget of yours have a smell? No, Henderson replied. Not really. But when you turn the pages, here with this button, they kind of flutter like in a real book, and I can go to any page I want, and when it sleeps, it shows pictures of famous writers, and it holds a charge, and... It's a computer, Wesley had said. You're reading off the computer. The Henderson kid had taken his Kindle back. You say that like it's a bad thing. It's still Paul's case. You've never heard of a Kindle, Mr. Smith? Josie Quinn had asked. Her tone was that of a kindly anthropologist, asking a member of New Guinea's Kombai tribe if he had ever heard of electric stoves and elevator shoes. No, he said. Not because it was true. He had seen something called Shop the Kindle Store when he bought books from Amazon Online. But because, on the whole, he thought he would prefer being perceived by them as old school. New school was somehow mediocre. You ought to get one, the Henderson kid said. And when Wesley had replied without even thinking, perhaps I will, the class had broken into spontaneous applause. For the first time since Ellen's departure, Wesley had felt faintly cheered because they wanted him to get a book-reading gadget and also because the applause suggested they did see him as old school. Teachable old school. He did not seriously consider buying a Kindle. If he was old school, then books were definitely the way to go until a couple of weeks later. One day on his way home from school, he imagined Ellen seeing him with his Kindle just strolling across the quad and bopping his finger on the little next page button. "'What in the world are you doing?' she would ask, speaking to him at last. "'Reading off the computer,' he would say, "'just like the rest of you.' "'Spiteful.' "'But, as the Henderson kid might put it, was that a bad thing? "'It occurred to him that spite was a kind of methadone for lovers. "'Was it better to go cold turkey?' Perhaps not. When he got home, he turned on his desktop Dell. He owned no laptop and took pride in the fact and went to the Amazon website. He had expected the gadget to go for $400 or so, maybe more if there was a Cadillac model, and was surprised to find it was considerably cheaper than that. Then he went to the Kindle store, which he had been so successfully ignoring, and discovered that the Henderson kid was right. The books were ridiculously cheap, Hardcover novels, what cover, haha, ha, priced below most trade paperbacks. Considering what he spent on books, the Kindle might pay for itself. As for the reaction of his colleagues, all those hoiked eyebrows, Wesley discovered he relished the prospect, which led to an interesting insight into human nature, or at least the human nature of the academic. One liked to be perceived by one's students as old school, but by one's peers as new school. I'm experimenting with new technology, he imagined himself saying. He liked the sound of it. It was new school all the way. He also liked thinking of Ellen's reaction. He had stopped leaving messages on her phone, and he had begun avoiding places, the pit stop, Harry's Pizza, where he might run into her. But that could change. Surely, I'm reading off the computer, just like the rest of you, was too good a line to waste. Oh, that's small, he scolded himself as he sat in front of his computer looking at the picture of the Kindle. That is spite so small, it probably wouldn't poison a newborn kitten. True, but if it was the only spite of which he was capable, why not indulge it? So he had clicked on the Buy Kindle box, and the gadget had arrived a day later in a box stamped with the smile logo and the words One Day Delivery. Wesley hadn't opted for one day and would protest that charge if it showed up on his MasterCard bill. But he had unpacked his new acquisition with real pleasure, similar to the pleasure he felt when unpacking a box of books, but sharper. Because there was that sense of heading into the unknown, he supposed. Not that he expected the Kindle to replace books, or to be much more than a novelty item, really, an attention-getter for a few weeks or months that would afterwards stand forgotten and gathering dust beside the Rubik's Cube on the knickknack shelf in his living room. It didn't strike him as peculiar that, whereas the Henderson kid's Kindle had been white, his was pink. Not then. Two. Err Functions. When Wesley got back to his apartment after his confessional conversation with Don Alman, the message light on his answering machine was blinking. Two messages. He pushed the playback button, expecting to hear his mother complaining about her arthritis, and making trenchant observations about how some sons actually called home more often than twice a month. After that would come a robocall from the Moore Echo, reminding him for the dozenth time that his subscription had lapsed. But it wasn't his mother, and it wasn't the newspaper. When he heard Ellen's voice, he paused in the act of reaching for a beer and listened bent over with one hand outstretched in the fridge's frosty glow. Hi, Wes, she said, sounding uncharacteristically unsure of herself. There was a long pause, long enough for Wesley to wonder if that was all there was going to be. In the background, he heard hollow shouts and bouncing balls. He was in the gym, or had been, when she left the message. I've been thinking about us, thinking that maybe we should try again, I miss you. And then, as if she had seen him rushing for the door, but not yet. I need to think a little more about what you said. A pause. I was wrong to throw your book like that, but I was upset. Another pause, almost as long as the one after she'd said hi. There's a preseason tourney in Lexington this weekend. You know, the one they call a the bluegrass? It's a big deal. Maybe when I get back... We should talk. Please don't call me until then because I've got to concentrate on the girls. Defense is terrible, and I've only got one girl who can actually shoot from the perimeter, and. I don't know. This is probably a big mistake. It's not, he told the answering machine. His heart was pumping. He was still leaning into the open refrigerator, feeling the cold wafting out and striking his face, which seemed too hot. Believe me, it's not. I had lunch with Suzanne Montanari the other day, and. She says you're carrying around one of those electronic reading thingies. To me, that seemed, I don't know, like a sign that we should try again. She laughed, then screamed so loud that Wesley jumped. Chase down that loose ball! You either run or you sit! Then, sorry, I've got to go. Don't call me. I'll call you. One way or the other. After the bluegrass. I'm sorry I've been dodging your calls, but... You hurt my feelings, Wes. Coaches have feelings, too, you know? I... A beep interrupted her. The allotted message time had run out. Wesley uttered the word Norman Mailer's publishers had refused to let him use in The Naked and the Dead. Then the second message started, and she was back. I guess English teachers also have feelings. Suzanne says we're not right for each other. She says we're too far apart in our interests, but maybe there's some middle ground. I'm glad you got the reader. If it's a Kindle, I think you can also use it to go to the Internet. I I need to think about this. Don't call me. I'm not quite ready. Goodbye. Wesley got his beer. He was smiling. Then he thought of the spite that had been living in his heart for the last month and stopped. He went to the calendar on the wall and wrote pre-season tourney across Saturday and Sunday. He paused, then drew a line through the days of the work week after a line on which he wrote, Ellen? With that done, he sat down in his favorite chair, drank his beer, and tried to read 2666. It was a crazy book, but sort of interesting. He wondered if it was available from the Kindle store. That evening, after replaying Ellen's messages for the third time, Wesley turned on his Dell and went to the Athletic Department website to check for details concerning the Bluegrass preseason invitational tournament. He knew it would be a mistake to turn up there, and he had no intentions of doing so, but he did want to know who the Meerkats were playing, what their chances were, and when Ellen would be back. It turned out there were eight teams, seven from Division II and only one from Division III, the Lady Meerkats of Moore. Wesley felt pride on Ellen's behalf when he saw that, and was once more ashamed of his spite, which she, lucky him, knew nothing about. She actually seemed to think he had bought the Kindle as a way of sending her a message. Maybe you're right, and maybe I can change. Maybe we both can. He supposed that if things went well, he would in time come to convince himself that was indeed so. On the website he saw that the team would leave for Lexington by bus at noon this coming Friday. They would practice at Rupp Arena that evening and play their first game against the Bulldogs of Truman State, Indiana, on Saturday morning. Because the tourney was double elimination, they wouldn't be starting back until Sunday evening, no matter what, which meant he wouldn't hear from her until the following Monday at the earliest. It was going to be a long week. And, he told his computer, a good listener, she may decide against trying again anyway, I have to be prepared for that. Well, he could try. And he could also call that bitch Suzanne Montanari and tell her in no uncertain terms to stop campaigning against him. Why would she do that in the first place? She was a colleague, for God's sake. Only if he did that, Suzanne might carry tales straight back to her friend, friend who knew, who even suspected, Ellen. It might be best to leave that aspect of things alone, although the spite wasn't entirely out of his heart after all, it seemed. Now it was directed at Ms. Montanari. Never mind, he told his computer. George Herbert was wrong. Living well isn't the best revenge. Loving well is. He started to turn off his computer, then remembered something Don Allman had said about Wesley's Kindle. I thought they only came in white. Certainly the Henderson kids had been white, but what was the saying? One swallow didn't make a summer. After a few false starts, Google, full of information but essentially dumb as a post, led him first to a discussion of whether or not the Kindle would ever be able to produce color images on its screen, a subject in which Wesley, as a book reader, had absolutely zero interest. He thought to search for Kindle fan sites. He found one called The Kindle Candle, with a K. At the top was a bizarre photo of a woman in Quaker garb reading her Kindle by candlelight, or possibly candlelight. Here he read several posts, complaints mostly, about how the Kindle came in only one color, which one blogger called plain old smudge-friendly white. Below it was a reply, suggesting that if the complainer persisted in reading with dirty fingers, he could buy a custom sleeve for his Kindle. In any color you like, she added, grow up and show some creativity. Wesley turned off his computer, went into the kitchen, got another beer, and pulled his own Kindle from his briefcase. His pink Kindle. Except for the color, it looked exactly the same as the ones on the Kindle Candle website. Kindle Candle Bibble Babble, he said, It's just some flaw in the plastic. Perhaps. But why had it come one day express delivery when he hadn't specified that? Because someone at the Kindle factory wanted to get rid of the pink mutant as soon as possible? That was ridiculous. They would have just thrown it away, another victim of quality control. He thought of Ellen's message again. By then, he had it by heart. If it's a Kindle, I think you can use it to go to the Internet, she'd said. He wondered if it was true. He turned the Kindle on, and as he did so, he remembered there was something else odd about it. No instruction booklet. He hadn't questioned that until now because the device was so simple to use, it practically ran itself. A creepy idea, when you considered it. He thought of going back to the Kindle candlers to find out if this was a true oddity, then dismissed the idea. He was just goofing around, after all, beginning to while away the hours between now and next Monday, when he might hear from Ellen again. I miss you, kiddo, he said, and was surprised to hear his voice waver. He did miss her. He hadn't realized how much until he'd heard her voice. He'd been too wrapped up in his own wounded ego, not to mention his sweaty little spite. Strange to think that spite might have earned him a second chance. Much stranger, when you got right down to it, than a pink Kindle. The screen titled, Wesley's Kindle Booted Up. Listed were the books he had so far purchased, Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates and The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. The gadget had come with the new Oxford American Dictionary preloaded. You only had to begin typing your word, and the Kindle found it for you. It was, he thought, TiVo, for smart people. The question was, could you access the Internet? He pushed the menu button and was presented with a number of choices. The top one, of course, invited him to shop the Kindle store. But near the bottom was something called experimental. That looked interesting. He moved the cursor to it, opened it, and read this at the top of the screen. We are working on these experimental prototypes. Do you find them useful? Well, I don't know, Wesley said. What are they? The first prototype turned out to be basic web. So Ellen was right. The Kindle was apparently a lot more computerized than it looked at first blush. He glanced at the other experimental choices, music downloads, big whoop, and text-to-speech, which might come in handy if he were blind. He pushed the next page button to see if there were other experimental prototypes. There was one, er functions. Now, what in the hell was that? Er, so far as he knew, had only two meanings, a city in the Old Testament and a prefix meaning primitive or basic. The screen didn't help. Although there were explanations for the other experimental functions, there was none for this. Well, there was one way to find out. He highlighted er functions and selected it. A new menu appeared. There were three items. Er books, er news archive, and er local under construction. Huh, Wesley said what in the world? He highlighted er ur-books, dropped his finger onto the select button, then hesitated. Suddenly his skin felt cold, as when he'd been stilled by the sound of Ellen's recorded voice while reaching into the fridge for a beer. He would later think, it was my own ur, something basic and primitive deep inside telling me not to do it. But was he not a modern man, one who now read off the computer? He was. He was. So he pushed the button. The screen blanked, then Welcome to Ur Books appeared at the top of the screen, and in red. The candlers were behind the technological curve, it seemed. There was color on the Kindle. Beneath the welcome message was a picture, not of Charles Dickens or Eudora Welty, but of a large black tower. There was something ominous about it. Below, also in red, was an invitation to select author. Your choices may not be available. And below that, a blinking cursor. What the hell, Wesley told the empty room. He licked his lips, which were suddenly dry, and typed Ernest Hemingway. The screen wiped itself clean. The function, whatever it was supposed to be, didn't seem to work. After ten seconds or so, Wesley reached for the Kindle, meaning to turn it off. Before he could push the slide switch, the screen finally produced a new message. Ten million four hundred thirty-eight thousand seven hundred twenty-one Errs searched. Seventeen thousand eight hundred ninety-four Ernest Hemingway titles detected. If you do not know title, select Err, or return to Err Functions menu. Selections from your current Err will not be displayed. "'What in the name of God is this?' Wesley whispered. Below the message, the cursor blinked. Above it, in small type, black, not red, was one further instruction. "'Numeric entry only. No commas or dashes. Your current er, 117586.'" Wesley felt a strong urge, an er-urge, to turn the pink Kindle off and drop it into the silverware drawer or into the freezer along with the ice cream and Stouffer's frozen dinners. That might be even better. Instead, he used the teeny tiny keypad to enter his birth date. 7-19-1974 would do as well as any number, he reckoned. He hesitated again, then plunged the tip of his index finger down on the select button. When the screen blanked this time, he had to fight an impulse to get up from the kitchen chair he was sitting in and back away from the table. A crazy certainty had arisen in his mind. A hand, or perhaps a claw, was going to swim up from the grayness of the Kindle screen, grab him by the throat, and yank him in. He would exist forever in computerized grayness, floating around the microchips and between the many worlds of err. Then the screen produced type, plain old prosaic type, and the superstitious dread departed. He scanned the Kindle screen, the size of a small paperback, eagerly, although what he was eager for, he had no idea. At the top was the author's full name, Ernest Miller Hemingway, and his dates. Next came a long list of his published works. But it was wrong. The Sun Also Rises was there, For Whom the Bell Tolls, The Short Stories, The Old Man and the Sea, of course, but there were also three or four titles Wesley didn't recognize. And except for minor essays, he thought he had read all of Hemingway's considerable output. Also, he examined the dates again and saw that the death date was wrong. Hemingway had died on July 2, 1961, of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. According to the screen, he had gone to that great library in the sky on August 19, 1964, Birth date's wrong, too, Wesley muttered. He was running his free hand through his hair, pulling it into exotic new shapes. I'm almost sure it is. It should be 1899, not 1897. He moved the cursor down to one of the titles he didn't know, Cortland's Dogs. This was some lunatic computer programmer's idea of a joke. Pretty much had to be. But Cortland's Dogs at least sounded like a Hemingway title. Wesley selected it. The screen blanked then produced a book cover. The jacket image in black and white showed barking dogs surrounding a scarecrow. In the background, shoulders slumped in a posture of weariness or defeat or both, was a hunter with a gun, the eponymous Cortland, surely. In the woods of Upper Michigan, James Cortland deals with the infidelity of his wife and his own mortality. When three dangerous criminals appear at the old Cortland farm, Papa's most famous hero is faced with a terrible choice. Rich in event and symbolism, Ernest Hemingway's final novel was awarded the Pulitzer Prize shortly before his death, $7.50. Below the thumbnail, Kindle asked, Buy this book? Why? N? Total bullshit, Wesley whispered as he highlighted why and pushed the select button. The screen blanked again, then flashed a new message. Ur-novels may not be disseminated as according to all applicable paradox laws. Do you agree? Y. N. Smiling, as befitted someone who got the joke but was going along with it anyway, Wesley selected Y. The screen blanked, then presented new information. Thank you, Wesley. Your Ur-novel has been ordered. Your account will be debited $7.50. Remember, Ur er novels take longer to download. Allow two to four minutes. Wesley returned to the screen headed Wesley's Kindle. The same items were there. Revolutionary Road, The Old Man in the Sea, The New Oxford American. And he was sure that wouldn't change. There was no Hemingway novel called Cortland's Dogs. Not in this world or any other. Nonetheless, he got up and went to the phone. It was picked up on the first ring. Don Alman, his office mate said, and yes, I was indeed born a rambling man. No hollow gym sounds in the background this time, just the barbaric yawps of Don's three sons, who sounded as though they might be dismantling the Allman residence board by board. Don, it's Wesley. Ah, uh, Wesley, I haven't seen you in, gee, it must be three hours. From deeper within the lunatic asylum where Wesley assumed Don lived with his family, there came what sounded like a death scream. Don Allman was not perturbed. Jason, don't throw that at your brother. Be a good little troll and go watch SpongeBob. Then, to Wesley, What can I do for you, Wes? Advice on your love life? Tips on improving your sexual performance and stamina? A title for your novel in progress? I have no novel in progress, and you know it, Wesley snapped. But it's novels I want to talk about you know Hemingway's oeuvre, don't you? I love it when you talk dirty. Do you or don't you? Of course, but not as well as you, I hope. You're the 20th century American lit man, after all. I stick to the days when writers wore wigs, took snuff, and said picturesque things like Ickard and Dom. What's on your mind? To your knowledge, did Hemingway ever write any fiction about dogs? Don considered, while another young child commenced shrieking. Wes, are you okay? You sound a little... Just answer the question, did he or didn't he? Highlight Y or N, Wesley thought. All right, Don said. So far as I can say without consulting my trusty computer, he didn't. I remember him once claiming that Batista partisans clubbed his pet pooch to death, though. How's that for a factoid? You know, when he was in Cuba. He took it as a sign that he and Mary should beat feet to Florida, and they did, post-haste. You don't happen to remember that dog's name, do you? I think I do. I'd want to double-check it on the Internet, but I think it was Cortland. Like the apple? Thanks, Don. His lips felt numb. I'll see you tomorrow. Wes, are you sure you're... Frankie, put that down. Don't! There was a crash. Shit. I think that was Delft. I gotta go, Wes. See you tomorrow. Right. Wesley went back to the kitchen table. He saw that a fresh selection now appeared on the contents page of his Kindle. A novel, or something, called Cortland's Dogs had been downloaded from... Where, exactly? Some other plane of reality called Er or possibly You Are? Seven million, one hundred ninety-one thousand, nine hundred seventy-four? Wesley no longer had the strength to call this idea ridiculous and push it away. He did, however, have enough to go to the refrigerator and get a beer, which he needed. He opened it, drank half in five long swallows, belched, he sat down, feeling a little better. He highlighted his new acquisition. Seven dollars and fifty cents would be mighty cheap for an undiscovered Hemingway, he reckoned, and a title page came up. The next page was a dedication, to sigh and to marry with love. Then, this. Chapter One A man's life was five dogs long, Cortland believed. The first was the one that taught you. The second was the one you taught. The third and fourth were the ones you worked. The last was the one that outlived you. That was the winter dog. Cortland's winter dog had no name. He thought of it only as the scarecrow dog. Liquid rose up in Wesley's throat. He ran for the sink, bent over it, and struggled to keep the beer down. His gorge settled, and instead of turning on the water to rinse puke down the drain, he cupped his hands under the flow and splashed it on his sweaty skin. That was better. Then he went back to the kindle, and stared down at it. A man's life was five dogs long, Cortland believed. Somewhere, at some college a lot more ambitious than Moore of Kentucky, there was a computer program to read books and identify the writers by their stylistic ticks and tocks, which were supposed to be as unique as fingerprints or snowflakes. Wesley had a vague recollection that this computer program had been used to identify the author of a pseudonymous novel called Primary Colors, The program had whiffled through thousands of writers in a matter of hours or days and had come up with a news magazine columnist named Joe Klein, who later owned up to his literary paternity. Wesley thought that if he submitted Cortland's dogs to that computer, it would spit out Ernest Hemingway's name. In truth, he didn't think he needed a computer. He picked up the Kindle with hands that were now shaking badly. What are you? he asked. The Kindle did not answer. Three. Wesley refuses to go mad. In a real dark night of the soul, Scott Fitzgerald had said, it is always three o'clock in the morning, day after day. At three o'clock on that Tuesday morning, Wesley lay feverishly awake, wondering if he might be cracking up himself. He had forced himself to turn off the pink Kindle and put it back in his briefcase an hour ago, but its hold over him remained every bit as strong as it had been at midnight, when he had still been deep in the Ur books menu. He had searched for Ernest Hemingway in two dozen of the Kindle's almost ten and a half million Ur's, and had come up with at least twenty novels he had never heard of. In one of the Ur's, It happened to be 6,201,949, which, when broken down, was his mother's birth date. Hemingway appeared to be a crime writer. Wesley had downloaded a title called It's Blood, My Darling, and discovered your basic dime novel. But written in staccato, punchy sentences, he would have recognized anywhere. Hemingway Sentences. And even as a crime writer, Hemingway had departed from gang wars and cheating gore-happy Debs long enough to write A Farewell to Arms. He always wrote A Farewell to Arms, it seemed. Other titles came and went, but A Farewell to Arms was always there, and The Old Man in the Sea was usually there. He tried Faulkner. Faulkner was not there at all, in any of the Urhers. He checked the regular menu and discovered that Faulkner was not available in what he was coming to think of as his reality either, at least not in Kindle editions. Only a few books about American literature's count no count. He checked Roberto Bolaño, the author of 2666, and although it wasn't available from the normal Kindle menu, it was listed in several er Ur-Books submenus. So were other Bolano novels, including, in Ur 101, a book with the colorful title Marilyn Blows Fidel. He almost downloaded that one, then changed his mind. So many authors, so many Urs, so little time. A part of his mind, distant yet authentically terrified, continued to insist it was all an elaborate joke which had arisen from some degenerate computer programmer's lunatic imagination, Yet the evidence, which he continued to compile as that long night progressed, suggested otherwise. James Cain, for instance. In one ur, Wesley checked, he had died exceedingly young, producing only two books, Nightfall, a new one, and Mildred Pierce, an oldie. Wesley would have bet on The Postman Always Rings Twice to have been a Cain constant, his ur novel, so to speak, but no. Although he checked a dozen errs for Kane, he found Postman only once. Mildred Pierce, on the other hand, which he considered very minor Kane indeed, was always there, like A Farewell to Arms. He had checked his own name and discovered what he feared. Although the errs were lousy with Wesley Smiths, one appeared to be a writer of westerns, another the author of porno novels such as Hot Tub Honey, none seemed to be him. Of course, it was hard to be 100% sure, but it appeared that he had stumbled on 10.4 million alternate realities, and he was an unpublished loser in all of them. Wide awake in his bed, listening to one lonely dog bark in the distance, Wesley began to shiver. His own literary aspirations seemed very minor to him at this moment. What seemed major, what loomed over his life and very sanity, were the riches hidden within that slim pink panel of plastic. He thought of all the writers whose passing he had mourned, from Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow to Donald Westlake and Evan Hunter. One after another, Thanatos stilled the magic voices, and they spoke no more. But now they could. They could speak to him. He threw back the bedclothes. The Kindle was calling him, not in a human voice, but in an organic one. It sounded like a beating heart, Poe's telltale heart, coming from inside his briefcase instead of from under the floorboards and... Poe! Good God! He had never checked Poe! He had left his briefcase in its accustomed spot beside his favorite chair. He hurried to it, opened it, grabbed the Kindle, and plugged it in. No way he was going to risk running down the battery. He hurried to Ur books, typed in Poe's name, and on his first try found an Ur, 2,555,676, where Poe had lived until 1875, instead of dying in 1849 at the age of 40. And this version of Poe had written novels, six of them. Greed filled Wesley's heart, his mostly kind heart, as his eyes raced over the titles. One was called The House of Shame or Degradation's Price. Wesley downloaded it. The charge for this one was only $4.95, and read until dawn. And he turned off the pink Kindle, put his head in his arms, and slept for two hours at the kitchen table. He also dreamed. No images, only words. Titles, endless lines of titles, many of them undiscovered masterpieces, as many titles as there were stars in the sky. He got through Tuesday and Wednesday somehow, but during his Intro to American Lit class on Thursday, lack of sleep and overexcitement caught up with him, not to mention his increasingly tenuous hold on reality. Halfway through his Mississippi lecture, which he usually gave with a high degree of cogency about how Hemingway was downriver from Twain, and almost all of 20th century American fiction was downriver from Hemingway, he realized he was telling the class that Papa had never written a great story about dogs, but if he had lived, he surely would have. Something more nutritious than Marley and me, he said, and laughed with unnerving good cheer. He turned from the blackboard and saw twenty two pairs of eyes looking at him with varying degrees of concern, perplexity, and amusement. He heard a whisper, low, but as clear as the beating of the old man's heart to the ears of Poe's mad narrator. Smithy's losing it. Smithy wasn't, but there could be no doubt that he was in danger of losing it. I refuse, he thought. I refuse, I refuse, and realized to his horror that he was actually muttering this under his breath. The Henderson kid, who sat in the first row, had heard it. Mr. Smith? A hesitation. Sir, are you all right? Yes, he said. No, a touch of the bug, maybe. Oh,'s gold bug, he thought, and barely restrained himself from bursting into wild cackles. Class dismissed. Go on, get out of here. And as they scrambled for the door, he had presence of mind enough to add Raymond Carver next week. Don't forget where I'm calling from. And thought, what else is there by Raymond Carver in the worlds of Ur? Is there one or a dozen or a thousand where he quit smoking, lived to be 70, and wrote another half a dozen books? He sat down at his desk, reached for his briefcase with the pink Kindle inside, then pulled his hand back. He reached again, stopped himself again, and moaned. It was like a drug or a sexual obsession. Thinking of that made him think of Ellen Silverman, something he hadn't done since discovering the Kindle's hidden menus. For the first time since she'd walked out, Ellen had completely slipped his mind. Ironic, isn't it? Now I'm reading off the computer, Ellen, and I can't stop. I refuse to spend the rest of the day looking into that thing, he said, and I refuse to go mad. I refuse to look, and I refuse to go mad. To look or go mad. I refuse both. I... But the pink Kindle was in his hand. He had taken it out, even as he had been denying its power over him. When had he done that? And did he really intend to sit here in this empty classroom, mooning over it? Mr. Smith? The voice startled him so badly that he dropped the Kindle on his desk. He snatched it up at once and examined it, terrified it might be broken. But it was all right. Thank God. I didn't mean to startle you. It was the Henderson kid, standing in the doorway and looking, concerned. This didn't surprise Wesley much. If I saw me right now, I'd probably be concerned too. Oh, you didn't startle me, Wesley said, this Obvious lie struck him as funny, and he gave voice to a glassy giggle. He clapped his hand over his mouth to hold it in. What's wrong? The Henderson kid took a step inside. I think it's more than a virus. Man, you look awful. Did you get bad news or something? Wesley almost told him to mind his business, peddle his papers, put an egg in his shoe, and beat it. But then the terrified part of him that had been cowering in the farthest corner of his brain, insisting that the pink Kindle was a prank or the opening gambit of some elaborate con, decided to stop hiding and start acting. If you really refuse to go mad, you better do something about this, it said. So how about it? What's your first name, Mr. Henderson? It's entirely slipped my mind. The kid smiled, a pleasant smile, but the concern was still in his eyes. Robert, sir, Robbie. Well, Robbie, I'm Wes, and I want to show you something. Either you will see nothing, which means I'm deluded and very likely suffering a nervous breakdown, or you will see something that completely blows your mind, but not here. Come to my office, would you? Henderson tried to ask questions as they crossed the mediocre quad. Wesley shook them off, but he was glad Robbie Henderson had come back and glad that the terrified part of his mind had taken the initiative and spoken up. He felt better about the Kindle, safer than he had since discovering the hidden menus. In a fantasy story, Robbie Henderson would see nothing, and the protagonist would decide he was going insane, or had already gone. Reality seemed to be different. His reality, at least. Wesley Smith's-er. I actually want it to be a delusion, because if it is, and if, with this young man's help, I can recognize it as such... I'm sure I can avoid going mad, and I refuse to go mad. You're muttering, sir, Robbie said. Wes, I mean. Sorry. You're scaring me a little. I'm also scaring me a little. Don Allman was in the office, wearing headphones, correcting papers, and singing about Jeremiah the bullfrog in a voice that went beyond the borders of merely bad and into the unexplored country of the execrable. He shut off his iPod when he saw Wesley. I thought you had class. Canceled it. This is Robert Henderson, one of my American Lit students. Robbie, Henderson said, extending his hand. Hello, Robbie, I'm Don Allman, one of the Allman brothers. I play a mean tuba. Robbie laughed politely and shook Don Allman's hand. Until that moment, Wesley had planned on asking Don to leave, thinking one witness to his mental collapse would be enough but maybe this was that rare case where the more really was the merrier. Need some privacy? Don asked. No, Wesley said. Stay. I want to show you guys something. And if you see nothing and I see something, I'll be delighted to check into Central State Psychiatric. He opened his briefcase. Whoa, Robbie exclaimed. A pink Kindle. Sweet. I've never seen one of those before. Now I'm going to show you something else that you've never seen before, Wesley said. At least, I think I am. He plugged in the Kindle and turned it on. What convinced Don Allman was the collected works of William Shakespeare from Ur 17,000. After downloading it at Don's request, because in this particular Ur, Shakespeare had died in 1620 instead of 1616, the three men discovered two new plays. One was titled Two Ladies of Hampshire, a comedy that seemed to have been written soon after Julius Caesar. The other was a tragedy called A Black Fellow in London, written in 1619. Wesley opened this one and then, with some reluctance, handed Don the Kindle. Don Allman was ordinarily a ruddy-cheeked guy who smiled a lot but as he paged through Acts 1 and 2 of A Black Fellow in London, he lost both his smile and his color. After 20 minutes, during which Wesley and Robbie sat watching him silently, he pushed the kindle back to Wesley. He did it with the tips of his fingers, as if he really didn't want to touch it at all. So, Wesley asked, what's the verdict? It could be an imitation, Don said. But of course, there have always been scholars who claim that Shakespeare's plays weren't written by Shakespeare. They're supporters of Christopher Marlowe, Francis Bacon, even the Earl of Derby. Yeah, and James Fry wrote Macbeth, Wesley said. What do you think? I think this could be authentic Willie, Don said. He sounded on the verge of tears, or laughter, maybe both. I think it's far too elaborate to be a joke. And if it's a hoax... I have no idea how it works. He reached a finger to the Kindle, touched it lightly, then pulled it away. I'd have to study both plays closely with reference works at hand to be more definite, but it's got his... Lil. Robbie Henderson, it turned out, had read almost all of John D. MacDonald's mystery and suspense novels. In the Er 2171753 listing of MacDonald's works, he found 17 novels in what was called the Dave Higgins series. All the titles had colors in them. That part's right, Robbie said, but the titles are all wrong, and John D.'s series character was named Travis McGee, not Dave Higgins. Wesley downloaded one called The Blue Lament, hitting his credit card with another $4.50 charge, and pushed the Kindle over to Robbie once the book had been downloaded to the ever-growing library that was... Wesley's Kindle. While Robbie read, at first from the beginning and then skipping around, Don went down to the main office and brought back three coffees. Before settling in behind his desk, he hung the little-used Conference in Progress Do Not Disturb sign on the door. Robbie looked up, nearly as pale as Don had been, after dipping into the never-written Shakespeare play about the African prince who is brought to London in chains. This is a lot like a Travis McGee novel called Pale Gray for Guilt, he said. Only Travis McGee lives in Fort Lauderdale, and this guy Higgins lives in Sarasota. McGee has a friend named Meyer, a guy, and Higgins has a friend named Sarah... He bent over the Kindle for a moment. Sarah Mayer. He looked at Wesley, his eyes showing too much white around the irises. Jesus Christ, and there's... Ten million of these. these other worlds? Ten million, four hundred thousand, and some according to the Ur Books menu, Wesley said. I think exploring even one author fully would take more years than you have left in your life, Robbie. I could die today, Robbie Henderson said in a low voice. That thing could give me a freaking heart attack. He abruptly seized his styrofoam cup of coffee and swallowed most of the contents although the coffee was still steaming. Wesley, on the other hand, felt almost like himself again. But with the fear of madness removed, a host of questions were cramming his mind. Only one seemed completely relevant. So what do I do now? For one thing, Don said, this has to stay a dead secret among the three of us. He turned to Robbie. Can you keep a secret? Say no and I'll have to kill you. I can keep one, but how about the people who sent it to you, Wes? Can they keep a secret? Will they? How do I know that when I don't know who they are? What credit card did you use when you ordered Lil' Pink here? Mastercard. it's the only one I use these days. Robbie pointed to the English Department computer terminal Wesley and Don shared. Go online, why don't you, and check your account. If those... those... Er, books came from Amazon. I'll be very surprised. Where else could they have come from? Wesley asked. It's their gadget. They sell the books for it. Also, it came in an Amazon box. It had the smile on it. And did they sell their gadget in glow stick pink? Robbie asked. Well, no. Dude, check your credit card account. Wesley drummed his fingers on Don's Mighty Mouse mousepad as the office's outdated PC cogitated. Then he sat up straight and began to read. Well, Don asked, sure. According to this, Wesley said, my latest MasterCard purchase was a blazer from Men's Warehouse a week ago. No downloaded books. Not even the ones you ordered the normal way, The Old Man in the Sea and Revolutionary Road? Nope, Robbie asked. What about the Kindle itself? Wesley scrolled back. Nothing, nothing, no- Wait, here- He leaned forward until his nose was almost touching the screen. I'll be damned. What? Don and Robbie said it together. According to this, my purchase was denied. It says wrong credit card number, he considered- that could be. I'm always reversing two of the digits. Sometimes even when I had the damn card right beside the keyboard, I'm a little dyslexic. But the order went through anyway, Don said thoughtfully. Somehow, to someone, somewhere. What er does the Kindle say we're in? Refresh me on that. Wesley went back to the relevant screen. 117,586. Only to enter that as a choice, you omit the comma. Don said, that might not be the era we're living in, but I bet it was the era this Kindle came from. In that era, the MasterCard number you gave is the right one for the Wesley Smith that exists there. What are the odds of something like that happening? Robbie asked. I don't know, Don said. "But probably a lot steeper than 10.4 million to one. Wesley opened his mouth to say something and was interrupted by a fusillade of knocks on the door. They all jumped. Don Alman actually uttered a little scream. Who is it? Wesley asked, grabbing the kindle and holding it protectively to his chest. Janitor, the voice on the other side of the door said. You folks ever going home? It's almost seven o'clock and I need to lock up the building. This ends. Recorded Books Presents. This ends one, putting in two. What a good book. What a good book. Stephen King's Ur, everybody, here on Mutiny Radio. Er, disc two. Four, news archive. They weren't done, couldn't be done, not yet. Wesley, in particular, was anxious to press on. Although he hadn't slept for more than three hours at a stretch, in days he felt wide awake, energized. He and Robbie walked back to his apartment while Don went home to help his wife put the boys to bed. When that was done, he'd join them at Wesley's place for an extended skull session. Wesley said he'd order some food. Good, Don said, but be careful. Her Chinese just doesn't taste the same. For a wonder, Wesley found he could actually laugh. So this is what an English instructor's apartment looks like, Robbie said, gazing around. Man, I dig all the books. Good, Wesley said. I loan to people who bring back. Keep it in mind. Oh, will. my parents have never been, you know, great readers. A few magazines, some diet books, a self-help manual or two, that's all. I might have been the same way, if not for you. Banging my head out on the football field, you know, with nothing ahead except maybe teaching P.E. in Giles County. That's in Tennessee. Yeehaw. Wesley was touched by this, probably because he'd been hurled through so many emotional hoops just lately. Thanks, he said. Just remember, there's nothing wrong with a good, loud ye-haw. That's part of who you are, too. Both parts are equally valid. He thought of Ellen ripping deliverance out of his hands and hurling it across the room. And why? Because she hated books? No, because he hadn't been listening when she needed him to. Hadn't it been Fritz Leiber, the great fantasist and science fiction writer, who had called books the scholar's mistress? And when Ellen needed him, hadn't he been in the arms of his other lover, the one who made no demands other than on his vocabulary? and always took him in. Wes, what were those other things on the Er Functions menu? At first, Wesley didn't know what the kid was talking about. Then he remembered that there had been a couple of other items. He'd been so fixated on the Books submenu that he had forgotten the other two. Let's see, he said, and turned the Kindle on. Every time he did this, he expected either the Experimental menu or the Er Functions menu to be gone. That would also happen in a fantasy story or a Twilight Zone episode. But they were still right there. Err News Archive and Err Local, Robbie said. Huh, Err Local's under construction. Better watch out, traffic fines double. What? Never mind, just goofing with you. Try the News Archive. Wesley selected it. The screen blanked. After a few moments, a message appeared. Welcome to the News Archive. Only the New York Times is available at this time. Your price is $1, 4 downloads. $10, 50 downloads. $100, 800 downloads. Select with cursor. Your account will be billed. Wesley looked at Robbie, who shrugged. I can't tell you what to do, but if my credit card wasn't being billed, in this world anyway, I'd spend the $100. Wesley thought he had a point, although he wondered what the other Wesley, if indeed there was one, was going to think when he opened his next MasterCard bill. He highlighted the $100-800 line and pushed the select button. This time the paradox laws didn't come up. Instead, the new message invited him to choose, date, and err. Use appropriate fields. You do it, he said, and pushed the kindle across the kitchen table to Robbie. This was getting easier to do and he was glad and obsession about keeping the kindle in his own hands was a complication he didn't need understandable as it was Robbie thought for a moment then typed in January 21st 2009 in the err field he selected 1000000 err 1 million he said why not and pushed the button The screen went blank, then produced a message reading, Enjoy your selection. A moment later, the front page of the New York Times appeared. They bent over the screen, reading silently, until there was a knock at the door. That'll be Don, Wesley said. I'll let him in. Robbie Henderson didn't reply. He was still transfixed. Getting cold out there, Don said as he came in. "And there's a wind knocking all the leaves off the... He studied Wesley's face. What, or should I say, what now? Come and see, Wesley said. Don went into Wesley's book-lined living room study, where Robbie remained bent over the Kindle. The kid looked up and turned the screen so Don could see it. There were blank patches where the photos should have gone, each with the message, Image Unavailable. But the headline was big and black. Now it's her turn, and below it, the subhead, Hillary Clinton takes oath, assumes role as 44th president. Looks like she made it after all, Wesley said, at least in her one million. And check out who she's replacing, Robbie said, and pointed to the name. It was Albert Arnold Gore. An hour later, when the doorbell rang, they didn't jump but rather looked around like men startled from a dream. Wesley went downstairs and paid the delivery guy, who had arrived with a loaded pizza from Harry's and a six-pack of Pepsi. They ate at the kitchen table, bent over the Kindle. Wesley put away three slices himself, a personal best, with no awareness of what he was eating. They didn't use up the 800 downloads they had ordered, nowhere near it, but in the next four hours, they skimmed enough stories from various errs to make their heads ache. Wesley felt as though his mind were aching. From the nearly identical looks he saw on the faces of the other two, pale cheeks, avid eyes in bruised sockets, crazed hair, he guessed he wasn't alone. Looking into one alternate reality would have been challenging enough. Here were over 10 million and although most appeared to be similar, not one was exactly the same. The inauguration of the 44th president of the United States was only one example, but a powerful one. They checked it in two dozen different errors before getting tired and moving on. Fully 17 front pages on January 21st of 2009 announced Hillary Clinton as the new president. In 14 of them, Bill Richardson of New Mexico was her vice president. In two, it was Joe Biden. In one, it was a senator none of them had heard of, Linwood Speck of New Jersey. "'He always says no when someone else wins a top spot,' Don said. "'Who always says no?' Robbie asked. "'Obama?' "'Yeah, he always gets asked, and he always says no.' "'It's in character,' Wesley said. "'And while events change, character never seems to.' "'You can't say that for sure,' Don said.' We have a minuscule sample compared to the. the. he laughed feebly. You know, the whole thing. All the worlds of Ur. Barack Obama had been elected in six Urs. Mitt Romney had been elected once, with John McCain as his running mate. He had run against Obama, who had been tapped after Hillary was killed in a motorcade accident late in the campaign. They saw not a single mention of Sarah Palin. Wesley wasn't surprised. He thought that if they stumbled on her, it would be more by luck than by probability, and not just because Mitt Romney showed up more often as the Republican nominee than John McCain did. Palin had always been an outsider, a long shot, the one nobody expected. Robbie wanted to check the Red Sox. Wesley felt it was a waste of time, but Don came down on the kid's side, so Wesley agreed. The two of them checked the sports pages for October in ten different errors, plugging in dates from 1918 To 2009. This is depressing, Robbie said after the 10th try. Don Allman agreed. Why? Wesley asked. They win lots of times. But there's no rhyme or reason to it, Robbie said. And no curse, Don said. They always win just enough to avoid it, which is sort of boring. What curse? Wesley was mystified. Don opened his mouth to explain then sighed. Never mind, he said. It would take too long and you wouldn't get it anyway. Look on the bright side, Robbie said. The Yankees are always there, so we didn't all luck. Yeah, Don said glumly, the military-industrial complex of the sporting world. All right. Does anyone want that last slice? Don and Wes shook their heads. Robbie scarfed it and said, Why not check the big casino before we all decide we're nuts and check ourselves into Central State? What big casino might that be, Yoda? Don asked. The JFK assassination, Robbie said. Mr. Tolman says that was the seminal event of the 20th century, even more important than the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. I thought seminal events usually happen in bed, but hey, I came to college to learn. Mr. Tolman's in the history department. I know who Hugh Tolman is, Don said. He's a goddamn commie, and he never laughs at my jokes. But he could be right about the Kennedy assassination, Wesley said. Let's look. They pursued the John Kennedy in Dallas thread until nearly 11 o'clock, while college students hooted unnoticed below them on their way to and from the local beer pits. They checked over 70 versions of the New York Times for November 23, 1963. And although the story was never the same, one fact seemed undeniable to all of them. Whether he missed Kennedy, wounded Kennedy, or killed Kennedy, it was always Lee Harvey Oswald, and he always acted alone. The Warren Report was right, Don said. For once, a bureaucracy did its job. I'm gobsmacked. In some errs, that day in November had passed with no assassination stories, either attempted or successful. Sometimes Kennedy decided not to visit Dallas after all. Sometimes he did, and his motorcade was uneventful. He arrived at the Dallas trademark, gave his $100-a-plate luncheon speech. God, things were cheap back in the day, weren't they? Robbie remarked and flew off into the sunset. This was the case in Er Err 88,416. Wesley began to plug in more dates from that Ur. What he saw filled him with awe and horror and wonder and sorrow. In Ur 88,416, Kennedy had seen the folly of Vietnam and had pulled out over the vehement objections of Robert McNamara, his Secretary of Defense. McNamara quit and was replaced by a man named Bruce Palmer, who resigned his rank of U.S. Army General to take the job. The civil rights turmoil was milder than when Lyndon Johnson was president, and there were almost no riots in the American cities, partly because in Err 88,416, Martin Luther King wasn't assassinated in Memphis or anywhere else. In this Err, JFK was elected for a second term. In 1968, Edmund Muskie of Maine won the presidency in a landslide over Nelson Rockefeller. By then, the outgoing president was hardly able to walk without the aid of crutches and said his first priority was going to be major back surgery. Robbie ignored that and fixed on a story that had to do with Kennedy's last White House party. The Beatles had played, but the concert ended early when drummer Pete Best suffered a seizure and had to be taken to Washington, D.C. Hospital. Holy shit, Don whispered. What happened to Ringo? Guys, Wesley said, yawning, I have to go to bed. I'm dying here. Check one more, Robbie said. Four million, one hundred twenty-one thousand, nine hundred eighty-nine. It's my birthday, gotta be lucky. But it wasn't. When Wesley selected the err and added a date, January 20, 1973, not quite at random, what came up instead of enjoy your selection was this. No times this-er after November 19, 1962. Oh, my God, Wesley said, and clapped a hand to his mouth. Dear sweet God. What? Robbie asked. What is it? I think I know, Don said. He tried to take the pink Kindle. Wesley, who guessed he had gone pale, but probably not as pale as he felt inside, put a hand over Don's. No, he said. I don't think I can bear it. Bear what? Robbie nearly shouted. Didn't Hugh Tolman cover the Cuban Missile Crisis? Don asked. Or didn't you get that far yet? What? Missile Crisis? Was it something to do with Castro? Don was looking at Wesley. I don't really want to see either, he said. But I won't sleep tonight unless I make sure and I don't think you will either. Okay, Wesley said, and thought, not for the first time either, that curiosity, rather than rage, was the true bane of the human spirit. You'll have to do it, though. My hands are trembling too much. Don filled in the fields for November 19, 1962. The Kindle told him to enjoy his selection. But he didn't. None of them did. The headlines were stark and huge. NYC toll surpasses six million. Manhattan decimated by radiation. Russia said to be obliterated. Losses in Europe and Asia incalculable. Chinese launch 40 ICBMs. Turn it off, Robbie said in a small, sick voice. It's like that song says, I don't want to see no more. Don said, look on the bright side, you two. It seems we dodged the bullet in most of the errors, including this one. But his voice wasn't quite steady. Robbie's right, Wesley said. He had discovered that the final issue of the New York Times in Err 4,121,989 was only three pages long, and every article was death. Turn it off. I wish I'd never seen that damn thing in the first place. Too late now. Robbie said. And how right he was. They went downstairs together and stood on the sidewalk in front of Wesley's building. Main Street was almost deserted now. The rising wind moaned around the buildings and rattled late November leaves along the sidewalks. A trio of drunk students was stumbling back toward Fraternity Row, singing what might have been Paradise City. I can't tell you what to do, it's your gadget. If it was mine, I'd get rid of it, Don said. It'll suck you in. Wesley thought of telling him he'd already had this idea, but didn't. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Nope, Don said. I'm driving the wife and kids to Frankfurt for a wonderful three-day weekend at my in-laws. Susie Montanari's taking my classes. And after this little seminar tonight, I'm delighted to be getting away. Robbie, drop you somewhere? Thanks, but no need. I share an apartment with a couple other guys two blocks up the street over Susan and Nan's place. Isn't that a little noisy? Wesley asked. Susan and Nan's was the local cafe and opened at 6 a.m., seven days a week. Most days I sleep right through it, Robbie flashed a grin. Also, when it comes to the rent, the price is right. Good deal. Night, you guys. Don started for his Tercel, then turned back. I intend to kiss my kids before I turn in. Maybe it'll help me get to sleep. That last story, he shook his head. I could have done without that. No offense, Robbie, but stick your birthday up your ass. They watched his diminishing taillights, and Robbie said thoughtfully, nobody ever told me to stick my birthday before. I'm sure he wouldn't want you to take it personally, and he's probably right about the Kindle, you know. It's Fascinating. Too fascinating, but useless in any practical sense. Robbie stared at him, wide-eyed. You're calling access to thousands of undiscovered novels by the great masters of the craft useless? Jesus, what kind of English teacher are you? Wesley had no comeback, especially when he knew that, late or not, he'd probably be reading more of Cortland's dogs before turning in. Besides, Robbie said, It might not be entirely useless. You could type up one of those books and send it into a publisher. You ever think of that? You know, submit it under your own name, become the next big thing. They'd call you the heir to Vonnegut or Roth or whoever. It was an attractive idea, especially when Wesley thought of the useless scribbles in his briefcase. But he shook his head. It'd probably violate the paradox laws, whatever they are. More importantly it would eat at me like acid from the inside out. He hesitated, not wanting to sound prissy, but wanting to articulate what felt like the real reason for not doing such a thing. I would feel ashamed. The kid smiled. You're a good dude, Wesley. They were walking in the direction of Robbie's apartment now, the leaves rattling around their feet, a quarter moon flying through the wind-driven clouds overhead. You think so? I do. And so does Coach Silverman. Wesley stopped, caught by surprise. What do you know about me and Coach Silverman? Personally, not a thing, but you must know Josie's on the team. Josie Quinn from class? Of course I know Josie, the one who'd sounded like a kindly anthropologist when they'd been discussing the Kindle. And yes, he had known she was a lady meerkat, unfortunately one of the subs who usually got into the game only if it was a total blowout. Josie says Coach has been really sad since you and her broke up. Grouchy, too. She makes him run all the time and kicked one girl right off the team. That was before we broke up, thinking, in a way, that's why we broke up. Um, does the whole team know about us? Robbie Henderson looked at him as though he were mad. If Josie knows, they all know. How? Because Ellen wouldn't have told them. Briefing the team on your love life was not a coachly thing to do. How do women know anything, Robbie asked. They just do. Are you and Josie Quinn an item, Robbie? We're going in the right direction. Good night, Wes. I'm going to sleep in tomorrow. No classes on Friday. But if you drop by Susan and Nance for lunch, come on up and knock on my door. I might do that, Wesley said. Good night, Robbie. Thanks for being one of the Three Stooges. I'd say the pleasure was all mine, but I have to think about that. Instead of reading Ur-Hemingway when he got back, Wesley stuffed the Kindle in his briefcase. Then he took out the mostly blank bound notebook and ran his hand over its pretty cover. For your book ideas, Ellen had said, and it had to have been an expensive present. Too bad it was going to waste. I could still write a book, he thought, Just because I haven't in any of the other errors doesn't mean I couldn't hear. It was true. He could be the Sarah Palin of American letters because sometimes long shots came in, both for good and for ill. He undressed, brushed his teeth, then called the English department and left a message for the secretary to cancel his one morning class. Thanks, Marilyn. Sorry to put this on you, but I think I'm coming down with the flu. He added an unconvincing cough and hung up. He thought he would lie sleepless for hours, thinking of all those other worlds. But in the dark, they seemed as unreal as actors when you saw them on a movie screen. They were big up there, often beautiful, too, but they were still only shadows thrown by light. Maybe the Ur-worlds were like that, too. What seemed real in this post-midnight hour was the sound of the wind, the beautiful sound of the wind telling tales of Tennessee, where it had been earlier this evening. Lulled by it, Wesley fell asleep, and he slept deeply and long. There were no dreams, and when he woke up, sunshine was flooding his bedroom. For the first time since his own undergraduate days, he had slept until almost eleven in the morning. Five. Ur-Local, under construction. He took a long, hot shower, shaved, dressed, and decided to go down to Susan and Nan's for either a late breakfast or an early lunch, whichever looked better on the menu. As for Robbie, Wesley decided he'd let the kids sleep. He'd be out practicing with the rest of the hapless football team this afternoon. Surely he deserved to sleep late. It occurred to him that if he took a table by the window, he might see the athletic department bus go by as the girls set off for the Bluegrass Invitational 80 miles away. He'd wave, Ellen wouldn't see him, but he'd do it anyway. He took his briefcase without even thinking about it. He ordered the Susan's sexy scramble, onions, peppers, mozzarella, cheese, with bacon on the side, along with coffee and juice. By the time the young waitress brought his food, he'd taken out the Kindle and was reading Cortland's dogs. It was Hemingway, all right, and one terrific story. Kindle, isn't it? the waitress asked. I got one for Christmas, and I love it. I'm reading my way through all the Jody Picot's books. Well, probably not all of them, Wesley said. Well, why not? She's probably got another one done already. That's all I meant. And James Patterson's probably written one since he got up this morning, she said, and went off, chortling. Wesley had pushed the main menu button while they were talking, hiding the Er hemingway novel without really thinking about it. Feeling guilty about what he was reading? Afraid the waitress might get a look and start screaming, That's not real Hemingway? Ridiculous. But just owning the pink Kindle made him feel a little bit like a crook. It wasn't his, after all, and the stuff he had downloaded wasn't really his either, because he wasn't the one paying for it. Maybe no one is, he thought, but didn't believe it. He thought one of the universal truths of life was that, sooner or later, someone always paid. There was nothing especially sexy about his scramble, but it was good. Instead of going back to Cortland and his winter dog, he accessed the Ur menu. The one function he hadn't peeked into was err Local, which was under construction. What had Robbie said about that last night? Better watch out, traffic fines double. The kid was sharp, and might get even sharper if he didn't batter his brains out playing senseless Division Three football. Smiling, Wesley highlighted Ur Local and pushed the select button. This message came up. Access current er location, Y, N. Wesley selected Y. The Kindle thought some more, then posted a new message. The current er local is More Echo. Access, Y, N. Wesley considered the question while eating a strip of bacon. The echo was a rag specializing in yard sales, local sports, and town politics. The townies scanned those things, he supposed, but mostly bought the paper for the obituaries and police beat. Everybody liked to know which neighbors had died or been jailed. Searching 10.4 million more Kentucky-ers sounded pretty boring. But well, why not? Wasn't he basically marking time, drawing his breakfast out so he could watch the player's bus go by? Bad but true, he said, and highlighted the Y button. What came up was similar to a message he had seen before, Ur-local is protected by all applicable paradox laws. Do you agree? Why, N? Now that was strange. The New York Times archive wasn't protected by these paradox laws, whatever they were, but their pokey local paper was. It made no sense, but seemed harmless. Wesley shrugged and selected why. Welcome to the Echo Pre-Archive. Your price is $40 for downloads. 10 downloads, $2,500, 100 downloads. Wesley put his fork on his plate and sat frowning at the screen. Not only was the local paper Paradox Law protected, it was a hell of a lot more expensive. Why? And what the hell was a pre-archive? To Wesley, that sounded like a paradox in itself, or an oxymoron. Well, it's under construction, he said. Traffic fines double, and so do download expenses. That's the explanation. Plus, I'm not paying for it. No, but because the idea persisted that he might someday be forced to, someday soon, he compromised on the middle choice. The next screen was similar to the one for the Times archive, but not quite the same. It just asked him to select a date. To him, this suggested nothing but an ordinary newspaper archive, the kind he could find on microfilm at the local library. If so, why the big expense? He shrugged, typed in July 5th, 2008, and pushed select. The Kindle responded immediately, posting this message. Future dates only. This is November 20th, 2009. For a moment, he didn't get it. Then he did. And the world suddenly turned itself up to super bright, as if some supernatural being had cranked the rheostat controlling the daylight and all the noises in the cafe, the clash of forks, the rattle of plates, the steady babble of conversation seemed too loud. My God, he whispered. No wonder it's expensive. This was too much, way too much. He moved to turn the kindle off, then heard cheering and yelling outside. He looked up and saw a yellow bus with Moore College Athletic Department printed on the side. Cheerleaders and players were leaning out the open windows, waving and laughing and yelling stuff like, Go Meerkats! And we're number one! One of the young women was actually wearing a big foam number one finger on her hand. The pedestrians on Main Street were grinning and waving back. Wesley lifted his own hand and waved feebly. The bus driver honked his horn. Flapping from the rear of the bus was a piece of sheeting with meerkats will rock the rup spray-painted on it. Wesley became aware that people in the cafe were applauding. All this seemed to be happening in another world, another-er. When the bus was gone, Wesley looked down at the pink Kindle again. He decided he wanted to utilize at least one of his ten downloads after all. The locals didn't have much use for the student body as a whole, the standard town-versus-gown thing, but they loved the Lady Meerkats because everybody loves a winner. The tourney's results, preseason or not, would be front-page news in Monday's Echo. If they won, he could buy Ellen a victory gift, and if they lost, he could buy her a consolation present. I'm a winner either way, he said, and entered Monday's date, November twenty-third, two 2009. The Kindle thought for a long time, then produced a newspaper front page. The date was Monday's date. The headline was huge and black. Wesley spilled his coffee and yanked the Kindle out of danger, even as lukewarm coffee soaked his crotch. Fifteen minutes later, he was pacing the living room of Robbie Henderson's apartment while Robbie who'd been up when Wesley came hammering at the door, but was still wearing the T-shirt and basketball shorts he slept in, stared at the screen of the Kindle. "'We have to call someone,' Wesley said. He was smacking a fist into an open palm, and hard enough to turn the skin red. "'We have to call the police—no, wait, the arena. Call the Rupp and leave a message for her to call me ASAP. No, that's wrong. Too slow. I'll call her now. That's what—' "'Relax, Mr. Smith. Wes, I mean—' "'How can I relax?' don't you see that thing? Are you blind? No, but you still have to relax. Pardon the expression, but you're losing your shit, and people can't think productively when they're doing that. But take a deep breath and remind yourself that according to this, we've got almost 60 hours. Easy for you to say, your girlfriend isn't going to be on that bus when it starts back to, and he stopped, because that wasn't so. Josie Quinn was on the team, and according to Robbie, he and Josie had a thing going on. I'm sorry, he said. I saw the headline and freaked. I didn't even pay for my breakfast, just ran up here. I know I look like I wet my pants, and I damn near did, not with coffee either. Thank God your roommates are gone. I'm pretty freaked too, Robbie admitted, and for a moment they studied the screen in silence. According to Wesley's Kindle, Monday's edition of the Echo was going to have a black border around the front page as well as a black headline on top of it. That headline read, Coach, seven students killed in horrific bus crash, nine others critical. The story itself wasn't a story at all, only an item. Even in his distress, Wesley knew why. The accident had happened, no, was going to happen, at just short of 9 p.m. on Sunday night. Too late to report any details. Although probably, if they heated up Robbie's computer and went to the Internet, what was he thinking? The Internet did not predict the future. Only the pink Kindle did that. His hands were shaking too badly to enter November 24th. He pushed the Kindle to Robbie. You do it. Robbie managed, though it took him two tries. The Echo's Tuesday story was more complete but the headline was even worse. Death toll rises to ten. Town and college mourn. Is Josie, Wesley began. Yeah, Robbie said. Survives the crash. Dies on Monday. Christ. According to Antonia Tony Burrell, one of the meerkat cheerleaders, and one of the lucky ones to survive Sunday night's horrific bus crash with only cuts and bruises, the celebration was still going on, the bluegrass trophy still being passed hand to hand. We were singing We Are the Champions for the 20th time or so, she said from the hospital in Bowling Green, where most of the survivors were taken. Coach turned around and yelled for us to keep it down, and that's when it happened. According to State Police Captain Moses Arden, the bus was traveling on Route 139, the Princeton Road, when an SUV driven by Candy Reimer of Montgomery struck it. Ms. Reimer was traveling at a high rate of speed west along Highway 80, Captain Arden said, and struck the bus at the intersection. The bus driver, Herbert Allison, 58, of Moore, apparently saw Ms. Reimer's vehicle at the last moment and tried to swerve. That swerve, coupled with the impact, drove the bus into the ditch, where it overturned and exploded. There was more, but neither of them wanted to read it. Okay, Robbie said. Let's think about this. First, can we be sure it's true? Maybe not, Wesley said. But, Robbie, can we afford to take the chance? No, Robbie said. No, I guess we can't. Of course we can't, but Wes, if we call the police, they won't believe us, you know that. We'll show them the Kindle. We'll show them the story. But even to himself, Wesley sounded deflated. Okay, how about this? I'll tell Ellen. Even if she won't believe me, she might agree to hold the bus for 15 minutes or so, or change the route this guy Allison's planning to take. Robbie considered. Yeah, worth a try. Wesley took his phone out of his briefcase. Robbie had gone back to the story, using the next page button to access the rest. The phone rang twice, three times, four. Wesley was preparing to deliver his message to voicemail when Ellen answered. Wesley, I can't talk to you now. I thought you understood that. Ellen, listen, but if you got my message, you know we're going to talk. In the background, he could hear raucous, excited girls. Josie would be among them, and lots of loud music. Yes, I did get the message, but we have to talk No, Ellen said. We don't. I'm not going to take your calls this weekend, and I'm not going to listen to your messages. Her voice softened. And, hon, everyone you leave is going to make it harder. For us, I mean. Ellen, you don't understand. Goodbye, Wes. I'll talk to you next week. Do you wish us luck? Ellen, please. I'll take that as a yes, she said. And you know what? I guess I still care about you, even though you are a lug. With that, she was gone. He poised his finger over the redial button, then made himself not push it. It wouldn't help. Ellen was wearing her My Way or the Highway hat. It was insane, but there it was. She won't talk to me except on her schedule. What she doesn't realize is that after Sunday night, she may not have a schedule. You'll have to call Miss Quinn. In his current state, the girl's first name escaped him. Josie'd think I was pranking on her, Robbie said. A story like that, any girl would think I was pranking on her. He was still studying the Kindle screen. Want to know something? The woman who caused the accident, who will cause it, hardly gets hurt at all. I bet you next semester's tuition she was just as drunk as a goddamn skunk. Wesley hardly heard this. Tell Josie that Ellen has to take my call. Have her say it's not about us. Tell her to say it's an emer... Dude, Robbie said, slow down and listen. Are you listening? Wesley nodded, but what he heard most clearly was his own pounding heart. Point one, Josie would still think I was pranking on her. Point two, she might think we both were. Point three, I don't think she'd go to Coach Silverman anyway, given the mood that Coach has been in lately. and She gets even worse on game trips, Josie says. Robbie sighed. You have to understand about Josie. She's sweet She's smart, she's sexy as hell, but she's also a timid little mousy. It's sort of what I like about her. That probably says heaps of good things about your character, Robbie, but you'll pardon me if right now I don't give a tomcat's ass. You've told me what won't work. Do you have any idea what might? That's point four. With a little luck, we won't have to tell anybody about this, which is good, since they wouldn't believe it. Elucidate. First, we need to use another one of your Echo downloads. Robbie punched in November 25th, 2009. Another girl, a cheerleader, who had been horribly burned in the explosion, had died, raising the death toll to 11. Although the Echo didn't come right out and say so, more were likely to die before the week was out. Robbie only gave this story a quick scan. What he was looking for was a boxed story on the lower half of page one. Candace Reimer charged with multiple counts of vehicular homicide. There was a gray square in the middle of the story. Her picture, Wesley assumed, only the pink Kindle didn't seem able to reprint news photographs. But it didn't matter, because now he got it. It wasn't the bus they had to stop. It was the woman who was going to hit the bus. She was point four. Six, Candy Reimer. At five o'clock on a gray Sunday afternoon, as the Lady Meerkats were cutting down basketball nets in a not-too-distant part of the state, Wesley Smith and Robbie Henderson were sitting in Wesley's modest Chevy Malibu, watching the door of a roadhouse in Eddyville, 20 miles north of Cadiz. The parking lot was oiled dirt and mostly empty. There was almost certainly a TV inside the broken windmill, but Wesley guessed discriminating tipplers would rather do their drinking and NFL watching at home. You didn't have to go inside the joint to know it was a hole. Candy Reimer's first stop had been bad, but this second one was worse. Parked slightly crooked and blocking what appeared to be the fire exit was a filthy, dinged-up Ford Explorer with two bumper stickers on the back. My child is an honor student at the State Correctional Facility, one read. The other was even more succinct. I break for Jack Daniels. Maybe we ought to do it right here, Robbie said, while she's inside slopping it up and watching the Titans. It was a tempting idea, but Wesley shook his head. We'll wait. she has got one more stop to make. Hobson, remember? It's miles from here. Right, Wesley said. But we've got time to kill, and we're going to kill it. Why? Because what we're up to is changing the future, or trying to at least, we have no idea how tough that is. Waiting as long as possible improves our chances. Wesley, that is one drunk chick. She was drunk when she got out of that first juke joint in Central City, and she's going to be a lot drunker when she comes out of yonder shack. I can't see her getting her car repaired in time to rendezvous with the girl's bus 40 miles from here. And what if we break down while we're trying to follow her to her last stop? Wesley hadn't considered this. Now he did. My instincts say wait, but if you have a strong feeling that we should do it now, we will. The only strong feeling I have is a scared-to-freaking-death feeling, Robbie said. He sat up. Too late to do anything else anyway. Here she comes, Miss America. Candy Rhymer emerged from the broken windmill in a moderate weave. She dropped her purse, bent down to get it, almost fell over, cursed, picked it up, laughed, and then continued to where her Explorer was parked, digging her keys out as she went. Her face was puffy, not quite hiding the remains of what must once have been very good looks. Her hair, blonde on top and black at the roots, hung around her cheeks in lank curls. Her belly pooched out the front of elastic waist jeans, just below the hem of what had to be a Kmart smock top. She got into her beat to shit SUV, kicked the engine into life, It sounded in desperate need of a tune-up and drove forward into the roadhouse's fire door. There was a crunch. Then her backup lights came on and she reversed so fast that for one sickening moment, Wesley thought she was going to hit his Malibu, crippling it and leaving them on foot as she drove off toward her appointment in Samara. But she stopped in time and peeled onto the highway without pausing to look for traffic. A moment later, Wesley was following as she headed east towards Hobson and the intersection where the Lady Meerkat's bus would arrive in four hours. In spite of the terrible thing she was going to do, Wesley couldn't help feeling a little sorry for her, and he had an idea Robbie felt the same. The follow-up story they'd read about her in the Echo told a tale as familiar as it was sordid. Candace Candy Reimer, age 41, divorced, three children now in the custody of their father. For the last 12 years of her life, she'd been in and out of spin-drive facilities. According to an acquaintance, she seemed to have no friends, she had tried AA and decided it wasn't for her. Too much holy rolling. She had been arrested for DUI half a dozen times. She had lost her license after each of the last two, but in both cases, it had been restored, the second time by special petition. She needed her license to get to her job at the fertilizer factory in Bainbridge, she told Judge Wallenby. What she didn't tell him was that she had lost the job six months previous, and nobody checked. Candy Reimer was a booze bomb waiting to go off, and the explosion was now very close. The story hadn't mentioned her home address in Montgomery, but it didn't need to. In what Wesley considered a rather brilliant piece of investigative journalism, especially for the Echo, the reporter had retraced Candy's final binge, from the pot of gold in Central City to the broken windmill in Eddyville to Bandy's Bar in Hobson. There, the bartender was going to try to take her keys, unsuccessfully. Candy was going to give him the finger and leave, shouting, I'm done giving my business to this dive, back over her shoulder. That was at 7 o'clock. The reporter theorized that Candy must have pulled over somewhere for a short nap, possibly on Route 124, before cutting across to Route 80. A little further down 80, she would make her final stop, a fiery one. Once Robbie put the thought in his head, Wesley kept expecting his always trusty Chevrolet to die and coast to a stop at the side of the two-lane blacktop, a victim of either a bad battery or the paradox laws. Candy Reimer's taillights would disappear from view, and they would spend the following hours making frantic but useless calls, always assuming their phones would even work out here in the willywags, and cursing themselves for not disabling her vehicle back in Eddyville while they still had a chance. But the Malibu cruised as effortlessly as always, without a single gurgle or glitch. He stayed about half a mile behind Candy's explorer. Man, she's all over the road, Robbie said. Maybe she'll ditch the damn thing before she gets to the next bar save us the trouble of slashing her tires. According to the Echo, that doesn't happen. Yeah, but we know the future's not cast in stone, don't we? Maybe this is another Ur or something. Wesley didn't think it worked that way with err Local, but he kept his mouth shut. Either way, it was too late now. Candy Reimer made it to Banty's without going in the ditch or hitting any oncoming traffic, although she could have done either. God knew she had enough close calls. When one of the cars that swerved out of her way passed Wesley's Malibu, Robbie said, that's a family, mom, pop, three little kids goofing around in the back. That was when Wesley stopped feeling sorry for Reimer and started feeling angry at her. It was a clean, hot emotion that made his peek at Ellen feel paltry by comparison. That bitch, he said. His knuckles were white on the steering wheel that drunken, who-gives-a-shit bitch. I'll kill her if that's the only way I can stop her. I'll help, Robbie said, and clamped his mouth so tightly shut his lips nearly disappeared. They didn't have to kill her, and the paradox laws stopped them no more than the laws against drinking and driving had stopped Candy Reimer on her tour of southern Kentucky's more desperate watering holes. The parking lot of Banty's Bar was paved, but the buckling concrete looked like something left over from an Israeli bombing raid in Gaza. Overhead, a fizzing neon rooster flashed on and off. Hooked in one set of its talons was a moonshine jug with XXX printed on the side. The Reimer Woman's Explorer was parked almost directly beneath this, and by its stuttering orange-red glow, Wesley slashed open the elderly SUV's front tires with the butcher knife they had brought for that express purpose. As the whoosh of escaping air hit him, he was struck by a wave of relief so great that at first he couldn't get up, but only hunker on his knees like a man praying. My turn, Robbie said, and a moment later the explorer settled further as the kid punctured the rear tires. Then came another hiss. He had put a hole in the spare for good measure. By then, Wesley had gotten to his feet. Let's park around to the side, Robbie said, I think we'd better keep an eye on her. I'm going to do a lot more than that, Wesley said. Easy, big fella. What are you planning on? I'm not planning. I'm beyond that. But the rage shaking through his body suggested something different. According to the echo, she had called Banty's a dive in her parting shot. But apparently that had been cleaned up for family consumption. What she actually threw back over her shoulder was... I'm done doing business with this shit pit. Only by this point, she was so drunk, the vulgarity came out in a slippery slur. Shit Robbie, fascinated at seeing the news story played out before his eyes, right down to the upraised middle finger, which the echo had primly referred to as an obscene gesture, made no effort to grab Wesley as he strode toward her. He did call, wait, but Wesley didn't. He seized the woman and commenced shaking her, Candy Reimer's mouth dropped open. The keys she'd been holding in the hand not occupied with bird flipping dropped to the cracked concrete tarmac. Let me go, you bastard. Wesley didn't. He slapped her face hard enough to split her lower lip, then went back on her the other way. Sober up, he screamed into her frightened face. Sober up, you useless bitch. Get a life and stop fucking up other people's. You're gonna kill people. Don't you understand that? You are going to fucking kill people. He slapped her a third time, the sound as loud as a pistol shot. She staggered back against the side of the building, weeping and holding her hands up to protect her face. Blood trickled down her chin. Their shadows turned into elongated gantries by the neon bird winked off and on. He raised his hand to slap a fourth time. Better to slap than to choke, which is what he really wanted to do. But Robbie grabbed him from behind and wrestled him away. Stop it, that's enough. The bartender and a couple of goofy-looking patrons were now standing in the doorway, gawking. Candy Reimer had slid down to a sitting position. She was weeping hysterically, her hands pressed to her swelling face. Why does everyone hate me? She sobbed. Why is everyone so goddamn mean? Wesley looked at her dully, the anger out of him. What replaced it was a kind of hopelessness. He would say that a drunk driver who caused the deaths of at least 11 people had to be evil, but there was no evil here. Only a sobbing alky sitting on the cracked, weedy concrete of a country roadhouse parking lot. A woman who, if the off-and-on light of the stuttering rooster did not lie, had wet her pants. You can get the person, but you can't get the evil, Wesley said. The evil always survives. Isn't that a bitch? Just a total bitch. Yeah, I'm sure, but come on, before they get a really good look at you. Robbie was leading him back to the Malibu. Wesley went as docilely as a child. He was trembling. The evil always survives, Robbie. In all the errs. Remember that. You bet, absolutely. Give me the keys. I'll drive. Hey! Someone shouted from behind them. Why in the hell did you beat up that woman? She wasn't doing nothing to you. Come back here! Robbie pushed Wesley into the car, ran around the hood, threw himself behind the wheel, and drove away fast. He kept the pedal down until the stuttering rooster disappeared, then eased up. What now? Wesley ran a hand over his eyes. I'm sorry I did that he said, and yet I'm not. You understand? Yeah, Robbie said. You bet. It was for Coach Silverman and Josie, too, he smiled. My little mousy. Wesley smiled. So where do we go, home? Not yet, Wesley said. They parked on the edge of a cornfield near the intersection of Route 139 and Highway 80, two miles west of Cadiz. They were early, and Wesley used the time to fire up the pink Kindle. When he tried to access Ur local, he was greeted by a somehow unsurprising message. This service no longer available. Probably for the best, he said. Robbie turned toward him. Say what? Nothing, it doesn't matter. He put the Kindle back in his briefcase. Wes? What, Robbie? Did we break the paradox laws? Undoubtedly, Wes said, and with some satisfaction. At five to nine, they heard honking and saw lights. They got out of the Malibu and stood in front of it, waiting. Wesley observed that Robbie's hands were clenched and was glad he himself wasn't the only one still afraid that Candy Reimer might still somehow appear. Headlights breasted the nearest hill. It was the bus, followed by a dozen cars filled with Lady Meerkat supporters, all honking deliriously and flashing their high beams off and on. As the bus passed, Wesley heard young female voices singing We Are the Champions and felt a chill race up his back and lift the hair on his neck. He raised his hand and waved. Beside him, Robbie did the same. Then he turned to Wesley, smiling. What do you say, prof? You want to join the parade? Wesley clapped him on the shoulder. That sounds like a damn fine idea. When the last of the cars had passed, Robbie got in line. Like the others, he honked and flashed his lights all the way back to Moore. Wesley didn't mind. 7. The Paradox Police when Robbie got out in front of Susan and Nan's, where Lady Meerkat's rule had been soaked on the window, Wesley said, Wait a sec. He came around the front of the car and embraced the kid. You did good. Ungrammatical, but appreciated. Robbie wiped at his eyes, then grinned. Does this mean I get a gift, eh, for the semester? Nope. Just some advice. Get out of football. You'll never make it a career, and your head deserves better. Duly noted, Robbie said, which was not agreement, as they both knew. See in class? On Tuesday, Wesley said. But 15 minutes later, he had reason to wonder if anyone would see him. Ever again. There was a car in the spot where he usually left the Malibu when he didn't leave it in parking lot A at the college. Wesley could have parked behind it, but chose the other side of the street instead. Something about the car made him uneasy. It was a Cadillac, and in the glow of the arc sodium beneath which it was parked, it seemed too bright. The red paint almost seemed to yell, Here I am. Do you like me? Wesley didn't, nor did he like the tinted windows or the oversized gangsta hubcaps with their gold Cadillac emblem. It looked like a drug dealer's car. If that was, the dealer in question also happened to be a homicidal maniac. Now, why would I think that? Stress of the day, that's all, he said, as he crossed the deserted street with his briefcase banging against his leg. He bent down. Nobody was inside the car. At least, he didn't think so. With the darkened windows, it was hard to be entirely sure. It's the Paradox Police. They've come for me. This idea should have seemed ridiculous at best, a paranoid fantasy at worst, but felt like neither. And when you considered all that had happened, maybe it wasn't paranoid at all. Wesley stretched out a hand, touched the door of the car, then snatched it back. The door felt like metal, but it was warm, and it seemed to be pulsing, as if metal or not, the car were alive. Run. The thought was so powerful he felt his lips mouth it, but he knew running wasn't an option. If he tried, the man or men who belonged to the loathsome red car would find him. This was a fact so simple that it defied logic. It bypassed logic. So instead of running, he used his key to open the street door and went upstairs. He did it slowly because his heart was racing and his legs kept threatening to give way. The door of his apartment stood open, light spilling onto the upstairs, landing in a long rectangle. Uh, here you are, a not quite human voice said. Come in, Wesley of Kentucky. There were two of them. One was young and one was old. The old one sat on his sofa where Wesley and Ellen Silverman had once seduced each other to their mutual enjoyment, nay, ecstasy. The young one sat in Wesley's favorite chair, the one he always ended up in when the night was late, the leftover cheesecake tasty, the book interesting, and the light from the standing lamp just right. They both wore long, mustard-colored coats, the kind that are called dusters, and Wesley understood, without knowing how he understood, that the coats were alive. He also understood that the men wearing them were not men at all. Their faces kept changing, and what lay just beneath the skin was reptilian or bird-like or both. On their lapels, where lawmen in a Western movie would have worn badges, both wore buttons bearing a red eye. Wesley thought these two were alive. Those eyes were watching him. How did you know it was me? Smelled you, the older of the two replied, and the terrible thing was this. It didn't sound like a joke. What do you want? You know why we're here, the young one said. The older of the two never spoke again at all until the end of the visit. Listening to one of them was bad enough. It was like listening to a man whose voice box was stuffed with crickets. I suppose I do. Wesley said. His voice was steady, at least so far. I broke the paradox laws. He prayed they didn't know about Robbie and thought they might not. The Kindle had been registered to Wesley Smith, after all. You have no idea what you did, the man in the yellow coat said in a meditative voice. The tower trembles, the worlds shudder in their courses, the rose feels a chill as of winter. Very poetic, but not very illuminating. What tower, what rose? Wesley could feel sweat breaking on his forehead, even though he liked to keep the apartment cool. Because of them, he thought. These boys run hot. It doesn't matter, his younger visitor said. Explain yourself, Wesley of Kentucky, and do it well if you would ever see sunshine again. For a moment Wesley couldn't. His mind was filled with a single thought, I'm on trial here. Then he swept it aside, the return of his anger, a pale imitation of what he had felt toward Candy Reimer, but real anger just the same, helped in this regard. People were going to die, almost a dozen, maybe more, That might not mean much to fellows like you, but it does to me, especially since one of them happens to be a woman I'm in love with, all because of one self-indulgent drunk who won't address her problems, and... He almost said, and we, but made the necessary course correction just in time. And I didn't even hurt her. I slapped her a little, but I couldn't help myself. You boys can never help yourselves. The buzzing voice of the thing in his favorite chair, which would never be his favorite chair again, replied, poor impulse control is 90% of your problem. Did it ever cross your mind, Wesley, of Kentucky, that the paradox laws exist for a reason? I didn't. The thing raised its voice. Of course you didn't. We know you didn't. We're here because you didn't. It didn't cross your mind that one of the people on that bus might become a serial killer, someone who might kill dozens, including a child who would otherwise grow up to cure cancer or Alzheimer's disease. It didn't occur to you that one of those young women might give birth to the next Hitler or Stalin, a human monster who would go on to kill millions of your fellow humans on this level of the tower. It didn't occur to you that you were meddling in events far beyond your ability to understand. No, he had not considered those things at all. Ellen was what he had considered, as Josie Quinn was what Robbie had considered. And together they had considered the others, kids screaming, their skin turning to tallow and dripping off their bones, maybe dying the worst Death's God visits on his suffering people. "'Does that happen?' he whispered. "'We don't know what happens,' the thing in the yellow coat said. "'That's precisely the point. "'The experimental program you foolishly accessed "'can see clearly six months into the future, "'within a single narrow geographical area, that is. "'Beyond six months, predictive sight grows dim. "'Beyond a year, all is darkness.'" So you see, we don't know what you and your young friend may have done, and since we don't, there's no chance to repair the damage if there was damage. Your young friend. They knew about Robbie Henderson, after all. Wesley's heart sank. Is there some sort of power controlling all this? There is, isn't there? When I accessed Ur books for the first time, I saw a tower. All things serve the tower, the man-thing in the yellow duster said, and touched the hideous button on its coat with a kind of reverence. Then how do you know I'm not serving it too? They said nothing, only stared at him with their black, predatory bird eyes. I never ordered it, you know. I mean, I ordered a Kindle, that much is true, but I never ordered the one I got, it just came. There was a long silence and Wesley understood that his life was spinning inside it. Life as he knew it, at least. He might continue some sort of existence if these two creatures took him away in their loathsome red car, but it would be a dark existence, probably an imprisoned existence, and he guessed he would not retain his sanity for long. We think it was a mistake in shipping, the young one said finally. But you don't know for sure, do you, because you don't know where it came from. Or who sent it? More silence. Then the older of the two said, All things serve the tower. He stood and held out his hand. It shimmered and became a claw, shimmered again and became a hand. Give it to me, Wesley of Kentucky. Wesley of Kentucky didn't have to be asked twice although his hands were trembling so badly that he fumbled with the buckles of his briefcase for what felt like hours. At last, the top sprang open, and he held the pink kindle out to the older of the two. The creature stared at it with a crazed hunger that made Wesley feel like screaming. I don't think it works anymore, and he- The creature snatched it. For one second, Wesley felt its skin and understood the creature's flesh had its own thoughts, howling thoughts that ran along their own unknowable circuits. This time, he did scream, or tried to. What actually came out was a low, choked groan. This time, we're giving you a pass, the young one said. But if anything like this ever happens again, it didn't finish. It didn't have to. They moved to the door, the hems of their coats making loathsome liquid chuckling sounds. The older one went out still holding the pink kindle in its claw hands. The other paused for a moment to look back at Wesley. Do you understand how lucky you are? Yes, Wesley whispered. Then say thank you. Thank you. It was gone without another word. He couldn't bring himself to sit on the sofa or in the chair that had seemed in the days before Ellen to be his best friend in the world. He lay down on his bed and crossed his arms over his chest in an effort to stop the shutters that were whipping through him. He left the lights on because there was no sense turning them off. He felt sure he would not sleep again for weeks, perhaps never. He'd begin to drift off, then see those greedy black eyes and hear that voice saying, do you understand how lucky you are? No, sleep was definitely out. And with that, consciousness ceased. Eight, Ellen. Wesley slept until the music box tinkle of Pachelbel's cannon in D woke him at nine o'clock the next morning. If there were dreams of pink Kindles, women in roadhouse parking lots, or low men in yellow coats, he did not remember them. All he knew was that someone was calling his cell, and it might be someone he wanted to talk to very badly. He ran into the living room, but the ringing ceased before he could get the phone out of his briefcase. He flipped it open and saw, you have one new message. He accessed it. Hey, pal, Don Allman's voice said. You better check the morning paper that was all. He no longer subscribed to the echo, but old Mrs. Ridpath, his downstairs neighbor, did. He took the stairs two at a time, and there it was, sticking out of her mailbox. He reached for it, then hesitated. What if his deep sleep hadn't been natural? What if he had been anesthetized somehow? so he could be booted into a different er one where the crash had happened after all. What if Don had called to prepare him? Suppose he unfolded the paper and saw the black border that was the newspaper world's version of funeral crepe. Please, he whispered, unsure if it was God or that mysterious dark tower he was praying to. Please, let it still be my err. He took the paper in a numb hand and unfolded it. The border was there boxing in the entire front page. But it was blue rather than black. Meerkat blue. The photo was the biggest he'd ever seen in the Echo. It took up half of the front page, under a headline reading, Lady Meerkats Take Bluegrass and the Future Lies Ahead. The team was clustered on the hardwood of Rupp Arena. Three were hoisting a shiny silver trophy. Another, it was Josie, stood on a stepladder, twirling a net over her head. Standing in front of her team, dressed in the prim blue slacks and blue blazer she invariably wore on game days, was Ellen Silverman. She was smiling and holding up a handmade sign that read, I love you, Wesley. Wesley thrust his hands, one still holding the newspaper over his head, and let out a yell that caused a couple of kids on the other side of the street to look around. What's up? One of them called. Sports fan, Wesley called back, then raced back upstairs. He had a call to make. The End Isn't that a great book by Stephen King? I mean, it ends happy? What? I love it! Um, you, can, you can't find it anywhere. It's uh, narrated by Holter Graham doesn't exist in the world, uh, only on that CD. I hope Stephen King publishes it at some point. Anyway, uh, back to the night playlist. Chilling here at Mutiny Radio, coming up at 6 o'clock. Gates of Delirium is here, and uh, we're at Baby Blue's